Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. After last week's episode focused on the crisis in the Red Sea, this week we're going to turn to an even more important body of water, perhaps the most important body of water in the world, the Western Pacific. Now that's the bit of the ocean which takes in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the Straits of Malacca, and of course the Taiwan Strait. The question we're going to ask this week then is, why are the waters of the Western Pacific at the centre of the world's geopolitical tensions? And what is at stake there? I'm more nervous in this election because it is a choice between whether we want to be closer to China or to the US. Let's start in Taiwan, where William Lai has won the election and is set to become Taiwan's president. Lai has been labelled a troublemaker by China. We do not support Taiwan independence. We remain opposed to any unilateral changes to the status quo. China's top diplomat has warned that any steps towards Taiwan's independence will be severely punished. Taiwan's election is a regional affair within China. No matter what the results of the election are, they cannot change the basic fact that there is only one China and Taiwan is a part of it. So Helen, you and I went round the houses on this, talking about the right terminology for how we talk about this part of the world, because it is quite complicated. And I think we've spent a lot of time just staring at maps and getting our head (laughs) around this. So the reason we want to talk about this is because over the weekend, Taiwan went to the polls. And that's obviously important. And we're going to turn to that mostly in the second half, because I think it's only really a jumping off point for what is really at stake here, because it's really about the competition between China and the United States for global supremacy. And you had some figures that you were mentioning to me about the sort of scale of world trade that goes through this. It's more important than than the Red Sea. Significantly, I think we should be clear about this. And, And in part, this is an answer, I think, to some of the questions of why the Americans are less engaged with the Red Sea mm. than they might be. The answer kind of lies in, in some of this, I think, which is that around a third of maritime trade, the world goes through the South China Sea and 
80% of all world trade goes by sea. More than 60% of China's maritime trade goes through the South China Sea, uh, 40% of Japan's, 6% of American trade. So that's quite a lot by American um, standards. And then other countries as well, including the UK, 12%, India, 30%, Brazil, 23%. So this is crucially important waterway, both in terms of what China exports to the rest of the world, but also in terms of what China imports, particularly in relation to energy from the Middle East and Africa. Of course, because in my head, in a way, I'm thinking about everything coming out of China, but that's not the case. It's not like Russia today. It's not energy independent in any way. No, absolutely not. And so I think that this is really an important point in understanding what's at stake for China here. And the Strait of Malacca becomes particularly important in this respect because the Strait of Malacca is a very narrow body um, of water. It's 600 miles long. Its narrowest point is one and a half um, miles wide. One and a half miles. And it connects the... So it's effectively like the Suez Canal or the Panama Canal in in the narrowness in that respect, or at least at a certain point of it. And it connects the South China Sea to the Indian Ocean. So I think we've mentioned this before. The thing that has concerned the Chinese for quite a long time, most explicitly since 2003, the second Iraq war, is that the United States would be able to blockade in any war with China over Taiwan, would be able to blockade China's oil and um, liquid natural gas imports through the the Strait of Malacca. And so that's why this strategically is such a big deal for China, on top of the fact that its export economy is reliant on this. Yeah. So we should say to people, just pull up the map on Google Maps or whatever and have a look at this. You've got the South China Sea that sits, you know, to the, to obviously to the east of, um, of China, but to, uh, going south towards Malaysia. And then the Straits of Malacca are that small bit that cuts past Singapore and then goes up towards the Indian Ocean. Yeah, well, yeah, the three states around the, the Malacca Strait, which take primarily responsibility for freedom of navigation through the, the Malacca Strait, it's not actually the Americans who yeah. do. It's Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. And why all three are so so important yeah. and are being fought over. So, so let's turn to the history because I think the history is so important in understanding how it, it it is that the United States came to be so far into the Western Pacific. Again, looking at the map, you just get this understanding of how big the American empire is. You know, Guam, which is an American territory, is so far from the United States. I mean, obviously Hawaii is as well, but you're coming all the way over. And it's, you know, America has this control or its allies running from Japan down through Taiwan and then all the way down towards the Straits of Malacca, like we were saying. So let's go back to the start. How did the United States become so dominant in this part of the world? How did it become really a Western Pacific power? Yeah, I mean, this, I think, is a really interesting question in terms of its like long-term significance, because I think at the core of it, is really the development very early on, so from the beginning of the 19th century, of American commercial interests Mm -hmm. in Asia and in particular in China uh, and Japan. So actually, if you go back to the 1840s, then the United States is under a treaty, giving itself effectively because these treaties are being imposed upon China. Right, yeah. The same kind of rights that Britain secured in terms of treaty ports at the end of the first opium and war, 
that leads to a significant rise in US-China trade. And the crucial thing here is that it's the Yangtze River in China that is being opened basically mm. to foreigners. And from the 1850s, effectively a part of the American Navy is operating a river patrol in order to keep trade on the river open. In 1854, the Commander Matthew Perry opens Japan, right, which is being effectively closed. So it's the Americans, in the same way which you could say the British use their naval power to open China hmm. to the European powers, and then the Americans open Japan. And then I think we need to think about like what's going on like by the 1890s yep. in terms of this intense geopolitical competition over China, the crisis of imperial China, and the rise of Japan in that context because it's in 1894, 1895, the Japanese defeat China in the first Japan-China war. And I think then you can see that as the European powers plus Japan fight in a way to dismember imperial China, the Americans are saying, actually, we don't want China dismembered. We want the principle of what that they call open door policy to right. apply, which means that all foreign powers would have equal access to China. And it's in the context of, of that decade, the 1890s, it becomes really crucial in developing this American position right. in the and, Pacific. And they're expanding at this point as well, aren't they, the United States? I think it's in is it 1898, I think, that the Americans overwhelm the Spanish in Cuba and the Philippines and are therefore sort of moving west. So they get Puerto Rico, they get Cuba, and they pay $20 million dollars uh, for the Philippines. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary. Well, they actually militarily take the Philippines, I mean, effectively, in, in a battle with the Spanish. And, and Philippines becomes the first and by far the most important like American colony. American colony. And, and this part of America's history, is, I, I, it doesn't seem very well known, certainly not here. But I mean, I was surprised. I was reading a biography of Kipling. And Kipling is just finding this uh, fantastic because he sees the United States joining Britain in this kind of becoming a great imperial power. And it's from this that he writes The White Man's Burden and publishes it in the United States. You know, Send forth the best ye breed, go bind your sons to exile to serve your captives need. I mean, this is uh, not, I don't think, what the Americans sort of wanted to hear about what they were doing. And Mark Twain Responds, he sees this as a, a exporting freedom to, to begin with, but then reacts badly. So I think it's starting to have an effect on the American understanding of its global power and what it is to be a, a sort of in, a great imperial power. There's, a, I think, an important moment that we'll come back to all the way towards the end of this episode. Uh, it's called the Moro Crater Massacre. And it's a moment when the American control in the Philippines, where a group, I think, of almost a thousand villagers, are in a crater now. It's disputed whether they're rebels or whether they're hiding. But anyway, the upshot is that 900 Filipinos are killed and it becomes this point of contention and shame in the United States. And it was still being brought up by the Filipino president, Duarte, in 2016. So, so th this is an important moment, I think, in understanding... And the Americans beginning to understand what their power actually is over in the in the Western Pacific. Yeah, I mean, I think it's crucial to see that, that they run into a great deal of like nationalist resistance mm. in in the Philippines from the beginning. Is you know, they have to use violence for several years in order to secure mm. control of of the the Philippines as a, a colony. And if you then say, well, what is the pu purpose mm -hmm. uh, of this colony? The significant function of it is that. 
it's the base in which the United States can project military power. Yes. Particularly the base in which it can function as it wants to function in China. And that hope is, is that American economic development is going to be fueled by this opportunity that decaying China seems to open up to everybody. So you actually have an American development company set up in in China, as they see it, to develop China right. in the in eighteen um, and ninety five. Now, what's interesting though, and this I think has a long term effect, is that most actually of the American business attempts in China fail. It's not particularly um, successful, with one big exception. Standard Oil. Oh, okay. And Standard Oil is selling kerosene, which was oil that was being used for, for light, into China. It was Standard Oil's biggest Asian market. When those that river patrol is going up the Yangtze River, it's really protecting Standard Oil's interest that built facilities quite a long way down the river. And so what you've got here is American, a part of American naval power anyway, being used to maintain as they see it, freedom of navigation on the Yangtze River. Freedom but, of their navigation. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, the other European powers want that freedom of navigation too, and, and they're sort of doing their own thing, particularly the British. But they can't really do that unless that they've got a chain of bases. Yes, yeah. And then that means the Philippines, and previously to that, it had meant taking Guam, as you said, and also annexing Hawaii. Which is done, I'm thinking also, also done in um, eighteen um, ninety eight. So you've got a, like a, a set of territories that are either taken as territories, or in the Philippines' case, taken as a colony that are providing stations, including coaling stations. But that's what the first interest in Hawaii was actually in it. Which a sounds remarkably station. like the British. Yeah, it is to support that endeavor. But at the centre of it, I'd say, uh, is. American commercial interests in China, and particularly Standard Oil's commercial interests in China. Yeah. And this is essentially the situation until the Second World War. And then you have the Japanese taking the Philippines in 42, I think. So you have American control of the Philippines until then. And then the situation changes. Well, I would say here is where we would have to say that the Second World War really begins in 1937. Right. Rather than where we would usually think of it begins in 1939, because if we think about it in Asia, it's in 1937 that Japan engages in full-scale invasion of China. And that included attacking a US Navy river gunboat on the Yangtze River and three Standard Oil tankers. And what you see from that point onwards, so from 1937 onwards, all the way through the Second World War is large-scale American support for China against Japan, a massive volume of support after um, Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And that continued after 1945 as well. And remember that Franklin Roosevelt spends the Second World War thinking that China's going to be a great power yeah. in the post-war world. Think about the structure of the United Nations and that this is going to be done under Chiang Kai-shek's. Yes. The idea yeah. that the communists are going to win this civil war in China is not on the Americans' radar. Yeah, well, I mean, if you start that story then in 1937, you wouldn't finish it in 1945 either. So in 1945, America has obviously extended its dominance in this part of the world by becoming the dominant power in Japan as well as in the Philippines. And this is where this sort of colossal figure of Douglas MacArthur comes in. And there is a great book that I'd recommend called The American Caesar about MacArthur. And it, just to give you a, a scale of his kind of power at this time, he becomes effectively the controller of America's 
empire at this point. So the book American Caesar talks about how he ruled more absolutely than any other sort of consul in American history and even in all kind of recent Western imperial history. And most of his countrymen were completely aware of it. His powers extended to the Philippines and the Mariana Islands. Something like 100 million people were under his direct rule. And he was ruling so far away from Washington that he was effectively able to just issue edicts that controlled and rebuilt Japan entirely. It's kind of extraordinary. And part of his control was the Seventh Fleet Helen, which was America's uh, naval power at, the, at this yeah, point. Yeah, well, it was formed, I think, in Australia in 1943. I don't think it was initially formed under MacArthur's command, but I think he took command. And what happened after the war against Japan was over, that they initially, the Seventh Fleet moved to China. Right. And one of its tasks was to go back to the Yangtze Patrol Force, okay. which has obviously ended when Japan had been controlling mm-hmm. China. So you, you see a, a real American effort to try to reestablish its pre-1937 yeah. um, position in um, China. And I think it's important both to see how this era comes to an end and the kind of, not oddity perhaps of the Cold War, but the, the real change that the Cold War is going to bring about to see what a huge deal it is in American domestic politics in particular when the communists under Mao prove victorious in the Chinese Civil War. Yeah, and this is the start of the story that will that takes us yeah. all the way to here. In, in, and this in is going to obviously be the start of the story of Taiwan because the Republic of China government moves to the island of um, Formosa, Taiwan, um, and claims that it's still the legitimate government of yeah. China that the US will recognise all the way and through until the, the 1970s. But the first thing I think that happens that we really need to, to bring out is, is that this narrative in American Domestic politics takes hold around who lost China. Uh, And that's really about who has, as the critics, and Joe McCarthy is obviously pretty important, one of these Mm -hmm. critics who's going to use it in a a really quite destructive um, way, a saying is, is like America had, and it's actually particularly Standard Oil, had huge commercial interests at stake and they're all gone. Yeah. Because of what's happened in, uh, in China. And the Truman administration, I think, is put even before actually the final triumph of the Communist Party in China is put hugely on the defensive. Yeah, but yeah I was surprised this. at how unpopular he had become and how the, the people are starting to vie for the Republican nomination at this point, including both Eisenhower and MacArthur. MacArthur is seeking to become mm-hmm. president at this point. And MacArthur's view is that American policy in China was suicidal and that the United States could not escape sharing in the defeat. And and I think the key thing then that happens is that Taiwan starts to dominate the American mindset Mm. as, you know, if the defeat in China, as they saw it, then threatens their rule in Japan, it threatens Japan. So they have to they have to take control of, of, of Taiwan. Well, I think that, I think this is an interesting question, though, as to whether there isn't that doesn't actually depend upon the Korean War. So the Korean War begins in 1950 with North Korea's invasion of, of South Korea. And until that point, there isn't actually much of a commitment from the Americans to protect Taiwan yeah, in any it- in, in any way. It's really Korea that changes yeah, that. And I think it's Kissinger who says at one point that if it weren't for the Korean War, then the Chinese Communist Party would have taken control of Taiwan in the immediate years after 
the communist victory. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, Tr- Truman rejects MacArthur. I think that's that's the interesting thing, and he would continue to 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 reject MacArthur over the next uh, over the next five years. But MacArthur is saying that um, Washington should proclaim to all the peoples of Asia our firm intention to safeguard the Pacific by declaring its vital interests in what was then Formosa, now Taiwan. But Truman says no. The United States government will not pursue a course which will lead to the involvement of in the civil conflict in China, that's quite interesting language. Mm. So Truman is saying, "No, we don't. This is we don't. We can't get into a war with China over Taiwan, even though MacArthur, who is the kind of the, the sort of the it's, great Caesar yeah. in in Japan, is is insisting that we should they should." Yeah, and then what changes with as I've said with the Korean War? So that begins June 1950. Is that Truman orders the Seventh Fleet into the Taiwan Strait? Right. Yeah. To protect Taiwan from China, he's also wanted to make sure that. Taiwan doesn't try to a China. But this changes, I think, I mean, something that we need to understand about the present is like formed at this moment on Taiwan. And we'll come back to that. But I think it's also interesting just to think about the Korean War in terms of like why the Americans are involving themselves in the Mm -hmm. Korean War. Because if you look at it in terms of the commercial interests that have kept the United States in the West Pacific until 1949, they're gone. And in terms of trade transit, the only thing that really is at stake is the potential for Japan, which is still under American occupation at the time, to be able to export to the United States. Mm-hmm. Because in terms of the trade that the United States is doing, including oil exports across the Pacific that have been there in the pre-1945 world, aren't going to be there in the post-1945 world because the Americans want Japan to import Middle Eastern oil yeah. and not American oil. So in a way, I think, that the loss of China as it's perceived in Washington and the problems that that causes Truman shapes the entry into the Korean War because it's like saying our Cold War credibility is at stake. There's a, there's it's an, not interest so much as credibility. Yeah, there's an interesting debate I think then kicks off in the United States. I think it's led by Senator Taft, who is now be seen as a kind of isolationist, but I think that is a bit of a misnomer. I was reading about what he was actually suggesting at the time, which was that the Americans should draw their lines in Europe and Japan in Asia and Britain in Europe. And he was effectively a sceptic of NATO, but he was saying effectively limit America's commitments on both sides of the world and have a kind of fortress United States, but protected quite far out by Japan and Britain. Now that gets rejected, as you say, and because really of this sense of deterrence. And so they go into Korea. And that is an extraordinary moment which shapes so much of the world, not just Korea, obviously, that ends up being divided where it started being divided, actually. But it shapes so much. I mean, I don't think we appreciate quite how close we came to full-scale war. I certainly didn't appreciate how close we came to a sort of global war over over Korea. And still, I started reading about MacArthur and Truman's disagreements mm. about how you manage that conflict. Yeah. And I think the other thing that comes out of it is the Taiwan question, because yeah. without Korea, you don't have the same commitment from the Americans to Taiwan. And as a consequence of the fact that you do have the Korean War and you do have that American commitment, you then have a succession of crises in the Taiwan Strait around these small islands, Kwe and Matsu. You know, in which by 1958, Eisenhower is saying he's willing to use nuclear force to defend yeah. these islands. If you look at the history 
of nuclear threats in the Cold War world, then the Kwame Matsu crisis in 1958 is up there. Yeah, not quite perhaps with the the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, but it is a is a is a pretty big um, deal. So you've got the potential um, for now um, Soviet US conflict with China involved in the Taiwan Strait in the Cold War years. We then get to another obviously juncture in this story, which is the 1970s, and mm. in particular, the re-establishment of relations between the US and China. And that means for the Americans, ultimately breaking recognition of the government in Taiwan, the Republic of China government in Taiwan. That's done by a treaty in 1979. So this is Carter continuing the detente with China that Nixon had started. And that also, though, brings to an end, so this is 1979, the mutual defence treaty that Washington had agreed with Taiwan back in 1955, I think, to defend it. So now we're in a rather different situation. Yeah, it's amazing that because MacArthur had called uh, Taiwan America's unsinkable carrier tender. And the geographic location meant that if it lost uh, Taiwan, if it went into an enemy hands, it would constitute a threat at the very centre of American power there. And by the 70s, by 79, they're willing to give this up because of the detente with China. So, so they've placed it in a much bigger strategic context, which it's conflict with the Soviet Union. And we're going to sort of flip that as we come to the end of this episode, because the bigger context is back to China. Yeah, I think there is a caveat to how far the US detaches with the 1979 shifts. And that is that the following year, because there's quite a lot of congressional unhappiness about withdrawing the security guarantee to Taiwan, the, there's a piece of legislation passed called the, just called the Taiwan Act that allows the United States to provide defensive military aid to, mm. to, to Taiwan and pretty substantial yeah. defensive military aid. And that's the basis on which the United States... Um, offers what protection it does, because obviously what it would actually do in a crisis over Taiwan is, is still not quite clear. But this is the support structure, the origins of the present support structure yeah. from for Taiwan, from the Americans, come from, from this moment in the aftermath of the change in 1979 or the formal change in um, 1979. And I think it does reflect the fact that you've got people in Congress who are uneasy about the consequences of the um, opening to China and the, the change in China um, policy. I think there's one last thing that we should get to before we get, an, if you like, to the world that China's mm. economic return has created, and, and that is what happens to the Philippines. Yeah. Because what's gone on here uh, is that the Americans have made a security guarantee to the to the Philippines also back in the 1950s it involves American military bases there these are pretty important in terms of um, the way in which the Americans fight in Korea and in the way that they would fight in Vietnam but after the Cold War has ended mm. what you see in the Philippines where there has been you know like a regime in place that's largely American friendly obviously is a reaction that old nationalism mm -hmm. against America as the once imperial power and then the security protector. And after a vote in the Senate of the Philippines, then the Americans militarily leave the Philippines in 1992. And that in a way brings, I think, an era to an end. It's kind of, we've had the, the, the commerce reason 
for mm-hmm. the for the Philippines being as important as it was. The China commerce reason. Then we've had the Cold War reason. Yeah. For the Philippines as being important as it as it was. And then the Americans pulled back. Now, as we're going to find out, they're back there now, and or at least informed that they're back there um, now. But this looks like, in part, an American retreat has gone on at this point, yeah. sort of in the immediate aftermath of the end of the Cold War. Yeah, because there was that world that kind of MacArthur had built, where he, where he, you know, he talks about the America's line of defence running through a chain of islands, fringing the coast of Asia. Uh, by the t- part time you're talking about, there's a there's an ambivalence built into the relationship with Taiwan that just doesn't exist in Europe, where there is NATO that's been established and American defence is, you know, is there guaranteed by treaties. It's it's obviously very different there, and they see they seem to be pulling back, and yet now, as you say. It's completely shifted and it feels like we're back in the world of uh, Douglas MacArthur. Uh, and on that, we should turn to that world after the break. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi there, Ewan here, the producer of These Times. I just wanted to tell you about some of the other work we've been doing at Unheard. Over the weekend, we've released two interviews. One with These Times' own Tom McTague about the new war in the Red Sea. Why is China not sorting this out? They're the ones who are benefiting from it. Exactly. Surely that's what Donald Trump will say. They will say, once again, we're the schmucks. We're paying to keep open a sea lane that ultimately benefits China. And in the second, Freddie Sayers sits down for an exclusive interview with Alexei Arestovich the man vying to challenge Zelensky at the next Ukrainian election. Speaking philosophically, is the end of the modern era now. The modern period of humanity development is ending, I think. You can find both of these at www.unheard.com. Welcome back. So we finished the first half in 1992, I think, talking about this sense of America withdrawing a bit from the Pacific and of an era coming to an end. And actually, that that is correct, that an era was drawing to an end. But the, the new era kind of ends up looking remarkably like the old era. I think that's the kind of the complicating thing to get your head around here. Uh, let, let's quickly update listeners on the Taiwan election, because that's what we're hanging this episode on. And um, effectively, what happened was that the party of the governing president, his successor secured a third term. And the reason that this has been seen as so important is that he is the most hostile to China and the most kind of pro-independence. Now, he doesn't declare independence, which is seen as a kind of red rag to China, but he says that's because we are already independent. So it's, you know, it's a a form of words here that we're arguing 
over. They didn't have everything their own way. This The Democratic uh, Progressive Party is what they're called, the DPP, and the winning candidate was somebody called William Lai. Uh, they didn't actually secure victory in the legislative elections. No, they didn't. They weren't even the largest party. They lost the majority in the legislature. I think it should also be said as well that there is a significant third party now in Taiwan's yeah. politics, the Taiwan's People's Party. Uh, and that is part of the reason why the Democratic Progressive Party have won with about 40% of the presidential Hmm. Vote. Yeah, so 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 it's a it, there is a sort of ambiguity actually even in the Taiwanese election results themselves. Just as there's this odd ambiguity about what the relationship with the United States actually is, and we'll we'll, we'll try and draw that out in this half. I think we should go back to the 1990s then, and so we finished in 1992. But I think the the crucial moment is 1996, which is the first uh, the first Taiwanese presidential. Uh, election. And then you start to have these series of crises that sort of builds up all the way to where we are today. So what happened in 96? Yeah. So the Taiwanese had from the period from 1949 through to 1987, effectively military rule. Mm -hmm. 1987, that martial law came to an end. And in 1996, there was the first direct presidential election in Taiwan. And if you look at what had been going on the year before, there was already growing tensions over Taiwan between the United States and China. So the Clinton administration had granted a visa to the Taiwanese president to visit Cornell University there. And that could be interpreted depending on how one looked at the Taiwan Act, not the Taiwan Act, sorry, the 1979 Act as, mm. as not being compatible with that. The Chinese were very unhappy about it. And they started testing missiles in the Taiwan Strait. And this went on all the way through the election campaign. That election was won by the KMT, which is the, the, the party that had effectively under the military rule run Taiwan since um, 1949. There wasn't a peaceful transition of power in Taiwan until the 2000 election. But I think what is really important to see here is that in response to what China did during that election campaign is that the United States responded with its largest display of naval power in those waters since the nuclear crisis back in 1958 over these Kwemoy and Matsu islands. I think this is interesting timing because if you think about the story, the general story about the Clinton administration and China, it's about integrating China into yeah. the world economy. Clinton telling a story about how economic interdependence is going to mean, in some sense, a peaceful China, if not necessarily a, a democratic China. But here you have, in this decade that's taken to be, if you like, the end of history mm -hmm, decade, yeah. where you can actually see a lot of future conflict on display in those months in 1996. And what is then, I think, happened on the Taiwan question is that tensions have built up each time that there's been a presidential election. And in particular, if we look at subsequent elections, the 2016 election, because that was a year in which the DPP won the presidential election and for the first time won a legislative majority. And if you look at then the American response is that leads to quite significant increase in the military aid that's been provided to Taiwan by the Obama administration. Yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, that really is coinciding with China's rise to this position of 
uh, not a joint superpower, but the the, sec- the obvious second power in the world. Because in 1999 is the moment that Clinton agrees that China will join the WTO. And I think he gives this press conference where he kind of mocks the idea that China can control the internet. And he's so confident and charming. And he says something like, oh, well, good luck with that. It's like trying to nail Jello to the wall, you know. And I think when you look back at that press conference, it's on YouTube, it's really fascinating to watch. There is that, I don't know if it's naivety or just that sense that he really does believe in the end of history, that China will come into the uh, world economy and that it won't be a, a threat to American interests. And that really doesn't change in American politics until 2016. Is it? That's the moment as well where the American idea of which is their principal threat moves from Russia to, to China. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is where things get like complicated for reasons, some of which we've talked about before, in trying to work out when it is that essentially US-China relations move from being seen as a largely positive sum game Mm. through economic interdependence into essentially geopolitical competition and more zero-sum stakes. I think there's actually a case for saying that there's a real turning point in 2010, possibly earlier. But the the thing about 2010 uh, is that there's a a conflict between, or an incident perhaps would be a better way of putting it, an an initial incident between China and Japan in the East China Sea. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the sea north of Taiwan, between Taiwan, Japan, South Korea and China. Yeah. And what's at stake? stake here is another territorial conflict. I think we can a bit get taken with the idea in Western countries, perhaps we're not paying too much attention that actually the territorial conflict in in the West Pacific is fundamentally about Taiwan, but it's not only about Mm -hmm. Taiwan. And there's a set of islands that are also um, disputed, sovereignty over which is disputed. And in this case, in the East China Sea, it's islands that the, the Japanese call the Senkaku Islands. And these were initially taken by China going back to that period that we talked about the in the 1890s. So it's a in this sense that this is a, a conflict, the origins of which lie in that demise, or yep. the, the final demise of imperial China. Actually, the United States um, owned them or controlled them, occupied them until 1970. Um, two when it gave them um, back to um, Japan. Now, what happened um, here is that in 2010, there was an incident between a Japanese patrol boat and a Chinese fishing trawler. So in the aftermath of that, China, whilst denying that it was doing so, embargoed the sale of rare earths to Japan. And this caused real consternation in Washington. Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of the State at the time, asked for some really clear assurances from the the Chinese, which he sort of received that there would be no disruption to the exports of rare earths. And I think you can see from this point onwards, really, uh, an awareness in Washington that runs all the way through the Obama administration, the Trump administration, now the Biden administration, that these 
conflicts that China is involved in the East China Sea and in the South China Sea over the Spratly Islands that involves it in conflicts, particularly with the Philippines and Vietnam, but also with some other Southeast Asian countries as well, is a whole other set of complications in terms of the American position in the Western Pacific, not least because in the case of the Senkaku Islands, because America has a, given a security guarantee to Japan and because Japan controls these islands, it raises the question of whether the Americans would go to war yeah. to defend those islands for Japan in the case of, of a Chinese uh, attack upon them. And that, I think, meant that there's been pressure on American presidents. And you can see, it, I think it's 2014 that Obama actually explicitly says that, yes, the American security guarantee to Japan covers the Senkaku Islands. Wow. Now, that's quite a big mm. deal. Yeah, yeah. Because there's, there's ambiguity over Taiwan, but there's no ambiguity over Japan. No. Yeah. This is the crucial point. Uh, and, but also, but it also begs the question, would the United States actually go to war over these islands? And actually, even if you go back to the 90s, this question has lingered for quite a while. There's a Time article I found from like 1996, which basically has its headline, will the next Asian war be fought over a few islands? <laughs> and it's referring to these islands and the, this, it's an archipelago of islands in the East China Sea. And one of the reasons why they're so such interest both to Japan and China is just because there would seem to be gas fields there. And for a while, there was some cooperation between Japan and China about developing those gas fields, but then that cooperation broke down. I guess the interesting thing for me is why the United States feels so committed to this part of the world. So, you know, this is so far from American territory. It's not just a... Well, it's not so far from Guam. <laughs> not, not so far from Guam. But then Guam is really there as a base into this part of the world. you know. But I suppose that this is what seems to happen in imperial ventures, that you take steps, you acquire territory, and then you require more territory to defend that territory, and you, you keep moving. So we've seen that, actually, in the Red Sea episode. Mm. You know, suddenly the Suez Canal is threatened by one part of the world, so you have to take a bit, you have to take a bit more. But I do think it's an interesting question, because if in the 90s they're starting to pull back towards the United States from this position where it's extended into the Philippines with bases and uh, all the way into Taiwan, which is just what, 100 miles from the Chinese mainland. Um, why that they are creeping back in at this point? So it's principally, I think, it's you can only be understood because of the scale of China's rise, that where China wasn't considered a threat to American hegemony in that period after the Cold War, or, or even between the 70s to the 90s, it suddenly is a threat. Its, its rise is so great that America is responding in turn and starts to move back to try to contain China as a rival power. I think it is, but I think we can't really understand that without sort of turning in a way which we haven't really done so far to the way the world looks to China in right. this respect from the, um, the 90s um, onwards. Because... If we think about the role that China's played in this story, like so far, it was about the way in which the European powers plus Japan, the United States, essentially tried to fight over, the, if you like, the corpse of yep. imperial China. That imperial China was a China that wasn't engaged at sea. That China, imperial China, had not been a, a sea power really since the 16th century. So when China embarks on the scale of economic reform that it does at first under Deng Xiaoping and obviously then his successes and sees trade mm -hmm. as central to that. It is 
notably going to be maritime mm-hmm. trade. That is a, a very big change in Chinese like history. And then China, if you look at it from China's point of view, look at the map. Yeah. Now from China's point of view rather from the American point of view. And in terms of access into the blue water oceans, the Pacific Ocean and the Indian Ocean that it needs freedom of navigation in regard to in order to yep. develop economically in the way in which they, the Chinese leadership wants to, is they've got a problem um, because there are a whole set of islands that essentially, if they're controlled by the United States or not controlled by the United States allies, mm-hmm. and that the United States had an interest in blocking China, it's got considerable scope to do that. Absolutely. And, and yeah. if you then think about the origins of American naval power in the Western Pacific tied to American commercial interests, and then you just reverse it, you have Chinese naval power needing to be developed in order to protect China's commercial interests in the economic world in which it's participating in from the the 1990s. It needs its own assurances about freedom of navigation. And part of that then becomes they're going to have what gets to be called a blue water navy, so a much larger navy. And this is such a big change, given, as I say, that China hasn't been a maritime power really since the 16th century. And then it turned away from that, interestingly, yeah. yeah. And so you've then got the question of what is the purpose of this much larger Chinese navy that in in sheer volume terms, if you like, is the largest in the world, is nowhere near the most powerful in the world, which is still obviously the United States. So you've got questions like, well, what are the Chinese motives here? And at the same time, China's interest in being a maritime power again really makes it focus on these island questions. Mm-hmm. This time, I'd say particularly like the South China Sea Islands, the Spratly Islands, which is another archipelago of uh, islands. And you see China making these, really, when you look at a map, rather ludicrous, like territorial yeah. claims because they're a long way from Oh, it's amazing when you look China, at that map. They're, they're, they're right next to the Philippines, yeah. right? And so the Philippines becomes quite assertive again then in the 2010s uh, about its claims to these islands. And that really, I think, then is what brings the um, Americans back into the Philippines yep. question. Yeah, as you say, if you flip the map round and think about it from China's perspective rather than the United States, and just to go back to MacArthur, just MacArthur's quote that the America's line of defense runs through the chain of islands along the coast of Asia, starting in the Philippines, running through the Raiku archipelago, the main bastion being Okinawa in Japan, bends back through Japan and the Aleutian Islands back to Canada, uh, sorry, to Alaska, then add in American uh, military presence in South Korea and uh, and then Taiwan. And you've got, that is a quite a formidable blocking power. And then to think that China has to go through the Straits of Malacca to get out into the Indian Ocean and round to Europe. And that is, yeah, you can see why they feel that is a particular uh, vulnerability from their part. And I think then from the American mindset, flipping the the camera back around again, you have this sense that suddenly American power for the first time since uh, since the end of the Cold War is facing a genuine threat. There's a, I think there's a really interesting book that came out in 2021 by a guy called Elbridge Colby, who is likely to be quite an influential figure in a future Trump administration. It's called The Strategy of Denial. And I think this is really 
good at explaining the more hawkish kind of American mindset about what is the strategy there. And Colby writes that denying China hegemony over Asia is the cardinal objective now of US grand strategy. And that's be- that, that's because if China manages to establish hegemony over Asia, the most important part of the world, as you going all the way back to those stats that you were saying about global trade, then it effectively America will find it very difficult to retain its global preponderance uh, of power. And so he sets out this strategy, which effectively says, we can't restore our military dominance over China. They're now too powerful. We can't uh, escalate a war in the way that MacArthur actually wanted by suggesting to bomb the mainland from Taiwan uh, over the Korean War. We can't do that because the scale of the war would be too great. It wouldn't be worth, uh, the benefits wouldn't be worth uh, the price. And so America's only strategy now is what he calls a denial defense, which is basically you've got to stop China from pursuing what he says is China's best strategy is to uh, take one of the American allied countries in Asia, principally the Philippines, again, or Taiwan. They're the two keys. Because if they take one of those, then the rest of a kind of coalition that America has built in will start to crumble based on losing one. And so that, so you have to stop China from getting Taiwan. And that becomes the crew. And that's why the elections in Taiwan are seen as so crucial, because it's all about, really, it's about America or Chinese hegemony in this part of the world. I think one thing that's interesting here in relation to that, though, is the Philippines question. Yeah. Because if you look at Duarte's, the previous Philippine president, I think we've already mentioned, I think he comes in either 2016 or 17. Uh, and he looks like he is really making a shift towards China. And this comes just a few years after, under Obama, that the previous Philippine government had signed a new 10-year military pact. Yeah. So uh, actually, you've had the importance of the Philippines to the United States re-established during the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. Then you have the election of this guy who really wants to say that hedging strategy where where for security reasons we were closer to the US, but economically we're close to China, doesn't really work. We need to be like closer to China. But even before his term is finished, he shifted back into a, a more pro-American yep. position because of these disputes about the islands in particular. And he's actually saying at some point, you know, he will basically use military force in relation to the Spratly Islands. And what is partly triggering that is the fact that the, the Chinese are militarizing mm. by land reclamation some of these islands in the in the Spratly Archipelago. So you see that the, the question of territorial conflict over islands in the South China Sea and in different, somewhat different contexts in the East China Sea is shaping the way in which the powers, the other states in the area who are effectively got to choose between the US-China are shaping or making the choices in which they do. And since then, the new Philippinian president has actually encouraged re deeper American with the Philippines again. So if you looked at it on that score, you'd say, well, actually, the Philippines has now made China's situation more difficult. That puts more of an emphasis on the Taiwan question. But I think there's something here in regard to Taiwan that we really need to bring in that we haven't brought out so far, which is that what happens in Taiwan is absolutely of 
massive consequence for the entire world economy because of one company, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, that produces about two thirds maybe of the world's semiconductors, but produces more than 90% of advanced chips. Yeah. And that this means that in any war over Taiwan between the United States and China, which its production would be affected by that war, would have vast consequences. And so this is on top of all the consequences about shipping going through the, the Taiwan um, yeah. Strait. And the other thing to stress here is that this company's supply chains are integrated into the entire world <laughs> economy. So there are, it, it requires shipping freedom of maritime navigation in order for the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company to produce all these semiconductor chips on which our daily lives depend. It's extraordinary because I I think one way of of understanding it that I think I I sometimes fall into is thinking about Taiwan as, you know, as the new Berlin or the Taiwan Strait as the new Berlin and this is the new Cold War. And you can see in, in how I tried to explain Elbridge Colby's strategy there, which is influential in how a future Trump administration might think of this is it's like building he is he is effectively arguing for building a form of kind of Asian NATO it might not be under a treaty like that but he is saying that the key is to assemble a coalition uh, an anti-China hegemony co- coalition that will uh, hem China in and you have to convince all of those coalition partners to stick together and stick with the United States and they have to be convinced that the United States security guarantee is worth the paper it's written on and that America will go to war for any of those states. And that's why maybe you can go all the way back to the things you were mentioning about Obama and Clinton and why those the guarantees over, you know, seemingly small islands in the middle of nowhere matter so much. But actually, it's more complicated than the Cold War. Uh, it's, oh, it's vastly more far complicated. more complicated than the Cold. They were just as if you think about what was like going on in in Berlin. If mm. we put Berlin the centre of the Cold War in Europe, we should stress because obviously the Cold War was going on with actual wars yeah. in Asia and Korea and Vietnam. Is there is like nothing that's comparable to the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Indeed, if we think about the Cold War in Asia and what was at stake for the Americans in Korea or in uh, Vietnam economically, again, there's like, there's nothing comparable. And this isn't just for the Americans, this is for everybody, including for the Chinese. Now, you could argue, I think, that actually, that there's such economic interdependence between the US and China, just leaving everyone else out of it for a moment, actually makes it impossible for anybody to imagine like war over Taiwan. Yeah. Because in any circumstance, even in which there's relatively low level interference with shipping, then it's impossible for the the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company to function. And I think that one of the things that we should really have brought out perhaps earlier is the way in which it isn't just the case that China's integration into the trade side of the world economy and its commitment to export-led growth really made the South China Seas the most important body of water in the world where maritime trade is concerned. It did so at a point in which the production of many manufactured goods was changing to just-in-time production yeah. where you've got supply chains that are around the world and where depend upon the rapid movement of goods. And, and so it isn't just trade itself, but it's actual production that depends upon 
freedom of navigation in these waters and the absence of war yeah. in these waters. Well, like, I mean, the decision that Truman makes in the 50s is that you, the United States cannot afford to go to war with China. You know, And he blocks MacArthur from launching that war, even though Chinese forces were piling over the border into Korea. That was what changed the nature of the balance of power in Korea. And still, the United States didn't go, uh, didn't go to war. And as you were setting out, you know, stopped uh, anything from happening between Taiwan and China. And so, yeah, it, it seems unthinkable that they would go to war today. But the, the stakes have shifted in that China then wasn't a threat to American supremacy in the 50s or in the 90s, but it is today. But also, though, the states have just changed economically, I think, in just such a, a completely different way because the rest of the world is dependent upon what yeah. goes on in Taiwan and what goes on in China in a way that just was not true at any time in the period from 1949 yeah. to the 90s. Yeah. And if you even think about it just in terms of the Americans had a, a huge, in some sense, domestic psychic shock by the loss of China, when really what was at stake was, for the most part, like one company's yeah. commercial interest. Okay, a pretty important company in American um, politics. Standard Oil is not com comparable either with the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. I mean, that's why there's talk in the States that if there was an invasion of Taiwan, that the United States would bomb that company. But it would be completely a self-destructive thing to do because yeah. the entire, I mean, that, that would be such an enormous shock to the United States as much as to any. It just feels incredible to me that the United States has got into a position where it is it seems like it's incapable of catching up with what is being produced in Taiwan. That this, you know, the United States is the most developed technological. But it can power take. In the world. I mean, it, it probably or perhaps could, because some people are quite skeptical about it, over a pretty long period of time. But that's partly why this semiconductor stuff, or at least the advanced end of it, is like so dependent upon component conduction in different parts of the the world. It's an extraordinarily technical, complicated, logistically complicated operation. There's, in any short time frames, replicating it is just out of the question. And that doesn't mean to say that the Americans aren't trying to do that. And there's some, I think there's some operations of the company that are going to take place in the United States. But the timescales involved in replicating what took decades to build up in Taiwan and putting it in the United States, or indeed for China, putting it in China, just, I think, beyond what can be coped with in the geopolitical timeframes that each side is otherwise looking at. Yeah, and I guess that's why it's a prize though as well, as as well as the, a reason not to go to war. If you can get hold of that, that that must be an extraordinary But I think that you, you couldn't do it without destroying it in wartime conditions. I think that's the issue. Like the ring. I'll leave you with this thought, I guess. We should bring the episode to a close now. But in Colby's book, he says, if a denial defence and a strategy to bind this coalition doesn't work, then selective friendly nuclear proliferation may be the least bad option, although it would be dangerous, which is another way of saying, you know, give Japan, give Korea uh, nuclear weapons as well, rather than depending on the United States. Now that, if, that's the kind of thing that is, is being talked about. It shows you the stakes that are at play here, uh, which is extraordinary. I, w I think we're going to have to turn yeah. back to the chip story in a future yeah. episode because that is amazing how that happened but thank you so much for listening i really enjoyed going through that and learning a lot about taiwan and the western pacific please do follow us and like wherever you get your podcasts and please do give us a rating thanks very much
And as ever, this podcast was produced by Ewan Daughtry. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.